0: Welcome to The Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner, Matt Ziegler, helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world, from retirement to college savings, to taxes, to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey.
1: Justin Carpino and Jack Forehand are principals at Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is managing director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments.
0: All right, guys, today we are going to do a, I guess, year-end planning episode. And the way that we're going to tackle this is we're going to kind of talk about, from an investing perspective, what an investor might want to be looking at within their portfolio, uh, heading into year-end or going into the new year. Um, we'll kind of talk about, uh, Jack, we'll work our way through how we sort of view reviewing the quantitative investment models we run and some of the thoughts and decisions we make when adjusting those models, because we only do that really once a year and that's at year end. And so we'll talk through some of that. And then we're happy to have Ben back on.
2: Thanks for having me back, guys.
0: Matt's colleague at some point where um, we'll talk about sort of financial planning and navigating year-end decisions that way. Because, you know, with with clients, there's a bunch of, you know, decisions that people make uh, going into the end of the year around a lot of different things. And so kind of hearing from Ben and Matt, you know, what they talk to their clients about. And hopefully, out of all this, you know, people will basically say, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe I should be talking to my advisor. Maybe I should be looking at my portfolio as we kind of head into to the end of the year. Um, so I guess... To start, let's just start at the investing investing level. I'm kind of talking at the portfolio level. So if you have a portfolio of stocks, ETFs, ETFs or mutual funds, um, you know the different types of things that you would want to be looking at. So I guess the first one is pretty obvious. And in here, like this year, it's interesting. I would say up until maybe a week ago, you or a few weeks ago at least, you could have had a, a lot of tax loss harvesting opportunities. Um, but at least in the type of stuff that we do you know, it's been a pretty good month so far. And so some of those losses have kind of come off or come up or are back at break even. Um, I mean, for the most part, up until like two or three weeks ago, you know, the market was basically being led by, you know, a handful of, of stocks that were driving most of the gains. But, you know, in years like last year and this year, there's always opportunities to tax loss harvest. So let's start with that one and just talk about, you know, what tax loss harvesting is and the benefits that you get as an investor.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't want to be the guy that reigns on the parade of the episode concept right at the beginning, but uh, I am going to be that guy because one thing we should point out at the beginning is that a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today is stuff that should be done throughout the year and not necessarily just at the end of the year. Some of it is stuff that is great for the end of the year, but a lot of it is, including this topic right here, are things that if if you're periodically doing them throughout the year, you're probably going to do better than if you just do at the end of the year. And tax loss harvesting is a good example. Because losses that that get generated in your portfolio get generated throughout the year, and like 2020 is a great example of this. If if you were running a tax loss harvesting strategy year end, you basically missed the entire loss. Like you had that big loss early in the year, and then we made back the loss. And if you wanted to harvest losses, or if you were running something like a direct indexing strategy, and you didn't, and you waited till the end of the year, you didn't get the loss. So I think it is important. You know, first of all, it's important to look at this stuff at some point. You know, period. Again, if you're never looking at it, which is what a lot of people do, you end up in the worst case scenario. Looking at it at year end is certainly better than just not looking at it at all. And having like a scheduled time you look at it is certainly better than not looking at it at all. But also, you know, with a lot of these things, if you do it throughout the year, it ends up being a better thing. Um, So yeah, tax loss harvesting is interesting from a couple of perspectives. Like we do direct indexing and we do active portfolios. With direct indexing, you know, the, the issue always with tax loss harvesting is what am I replacing what I'm selling with? Uh, and the answer is a little bit different on both of those. So with direct indexing strategies, what I'm trying to do is continue to track the index. So something like the S&P 500. So I have to replace it with some sort of proxy of you know what, what I sold. With an active strategy, the decision-making process is a little bit different for tax loss harvesting because I, with us, at least, I, I want to have exposure to a particular factor, whether it be value or momentum or whatever. And if I'm going to take a loss, I have to balance taking that loss against, can I replace what I'm selling with something that, gives me an equal or close to that same exposure to that factor. Because if I haven't, then you know potentially the value of taking that loss is not as much as I'm giving up on the other side. So as as we sort of think at year end or whatever you do it about tax loss harvesting, that's, that's kind of how we think about it. We think about it differently in a direct indexing standpoint versus the way we think about it if we're running active portfolios. I think when we talk
3: about clients, it's important to remember the very poetic metaphors that we're using here in harvesting, which is a really great word for it. And to all the points that you just so eloquently added to this, Jack, it's you harvest for what you need. Uh, and just like you harvest with seasons, markets suck. Stuff is going down the last two years. You've had historically awful bond markets. So like in your stocks, in your bonds, in your alternatives, in all sorts of places, you've probably had losses. And if you're aware of what you want to stack up losses to need and use in a way to offset gains, income, whatever. You just need a strategy for how often you're going to harvest. And I think that's really, really important not to overlook here because that's what this boils down to. I think the other thing too
0: is, you know, if you're you're
3: maintaining some type of asset allocation or some type of
0: exposure, you know, I'll use gold as an example. You know, there's plenty of ETFs out there that can give you like gold exposure. So if you're down on one gold ETF, you know, you can switch it out for another it might be a little bit more expensive from a fee standpoint, but the point is you can still maintain that exposure through the various options that are out there, you know, pretty much for every major asset class and stock and style size, you know, there's like a, a good viable replacement alternative. Um, if you're trying to maintain a certain type of exposure, but you have
3: losses and you want to harvest it. And I think it's worth saying this too, uh, Ben, I'm going to let you answer. I'll let you answer this one. The, You got to remember matching up your short-term gains with your short-term losses and your long-term gains and losses and how this pours over. And then you should remember on the financial planning component as you do this, even if you haven't been doing it all year, taking inventory of what can be harvested now, ideally having a proactive strategy going forward. That's what people like us help with. But Ben, can you just talk about the rules with gains, what offsets what, and what works against income for individual investors?
2: Yeah, so you need to net short gain or short loss, and then long-term gain versus a long-term loss. That duration is based on one year. So once you cross the one year from the date of purchase, you would cross over into the long-term. Once those are netted, it's it's kind of funny that you're going to net those against each other, and then you're going to net the short versus the, the long. So you're almost netting everything against each other at some point anyway, but how that works moving forward. So if you were net negative, you did harvest a loss each year you can take a $3,000 above the line deduction. So above the line, the important uh, factor there is, is does not factor into itemizing or the standard deduction. There is no phase out for this $3,000 either. So everybody has access to it. What is really important though, in this tax planning conversation is, when you're realizing a gain or a loss, what is the tax arbitrage? What I mean by that is you are foregoing a capital gain at what tax rate? Tax, tax rates for capital gains on the long-term basis are at preferred rates, zero, 15, or 20%. Ideally, you're taking a loss and deducting that on your taxes at, higher, at a higher tax rate. So that's why everybody gets so excited at tax loss harvesting because your tax rate and your effective rate might be, let's call it 24 or 30%. Okay, well, if you're taking a loss at 30%, a deduction there, but if you take a gain, the maximum gain that you're gonna take is at 20%, there's a 10% window you're saved. That's why people get so excited. The con here with tax loss harvesting is always, you're resetting your basis lower. So at some point in the future, you're going to be paying a capital gain on these dollars if they continue to appreciate moving forward. But obviously there's a lot of strategies as Jack and Matt touched on. Doing this throughout the year and doing it year to year and decade to decade is critical. That's why a tax loss harvesting plan or strategy goes in place.
1: Yeah, one thing I want to follow up on what you said is you want to make sure like when you're doing tax loss harvesting, you want to think about it in a total portfolio context because you just talked about being able to take $3,000 loss. Well, if you already have $3,000 of a loss in your portfolio and you're getting all fired up about doing tax loss harvesting in December, like why are you doing it? What's the point? Like you're you're not gonna get any value from it. So it's important to think about it in the context of everything that's going on. And the only other thing I wanna say with what Justin said is you do have to be careful when you're selling something, replacing it with something. Matt, you probably know this better than me or Ben, you do. Like the idea is it can't be the same exact thing. So, like, if you're selling like an ETF, I think that has the exact same holdings as another ETF. I'm not sure if that's a gray area, but you got to be very careful about that. It's at least there's at least some sort of difference there, you know, if you want to be able to realize the loss.
3: Yeah, you have to traditionally swap to something that's different. So the classic example would be, can I sell SPY and buy VOO or like two S and P 500 funds or whatever? And there's some of that that you have to be careful with. Talk to your shrink. Talk to your accountant come up with a strategy that you know you can defend if you ever get audited and that's really what the rule is
2: that the i think short are, sa-
3: the short
1: sale rules those are the two things that always trip everybody up but there's there's differing opinions on that right like can you sell spy and buy voo like i think different people have different opinions on whether that counts or not talk to your shrink and talk <laughs> to your accountant <laughs> possibly your tax attorney
3: <laughs> you just need the person signing off on stuff that's comfortable defending whatever the decision is that you is that you make
1: Right. And, and whatever it is, don't do it because Matt or Jack told you so, because we have no idea. <laughs> the, the, the professionals, this is one of <laughs> those cases
3: where, where it gets wonky and yeah, you might want your shrink deck too. Well, and the other thing that, you know, the
0: year end provides for, it gives us an opportunity. This, and this is something that maybe you you can do throughout the year, of course, but it's just, there's a, there's a line in the sand with 1231. So this idea of, if you're trying to maintain some type of asset allocation or weighting in your portfolio among style and sizes ie small cap value large cap growth or mid cap cap blend or whatever it might be you know this idea of rebalancing back to target weights giving your risk tolerance giving your goals and your your time horizon um you know a lot of people do take the opportunity to do that at the end of the year and again just cuz it's like you know it's it's a line in the sand it gives them a, a marker And if you think about the last couple of years, at least, well, let's look at this year. Again, the market, you know, most of the returns have been driven by a handful of large cap companies. And so a lot of people probably, if they were to look at their portfolio, you know, they're probably going to see that their large cap growth exposure um, is depending on where they are in life. And, you know, but it's probably a higher weight than a lot of other parts of their portfolio, just because naturally that's where the gains have been. So, you know, if you're the type of investor that has a disciplined rebalancing system to bring it back, then, you know, the year end provides a good sort of opportunity to do that. And you always have these cases in any given year, there's asset classes or segments of the portfolio that have done better or worse. And, you know, trying to rebalance, I think is a good behavior when investors can do it tax efficiently. Um, You know, if you're paying short-term capital gains because of some rebalancing thing, that might not be the best move, but uh, with an IRA of course, there's no taxes. So, you know, that's where you can do it a little bit more efficiently, I guess.
1: And this this is one of those situations where if I did recommend a uh, once a year rebalancing, Corey Hofstein would probably, if he was watching us, would probably jump through the thing and attack me. Um, because basically the idea here is there's a lot of luck involved. If you do rebalance your portfolio only once a year, there's a lot of luck involved in that. And the the best example you can use of that is if you look at like strategies re- rebalanced every month. So a January rebalance, a February, a March, and April, a May, like over a very long period of time, like in the last 20 years or something, you end up with like March killing everything else. And the reason was because of 2009. Um, that was the bottom in 2009. So if you were buying your stocks back in 2009, like right at the bottom, you did much better. So so someone like Corey would argue that if you, if you can pull it off, you know, it's probably better to rebalance like one twelfth of your portfolio every month than it is to pick a random month and do it. But obviously there's a lot of other things going on, taxes and a lot of other implications in that. But just the idea is if you do only do it once a year, you you are looking at some degree of luck in there, which may work in your favor or may work against you.
3: And I think that's why you have to do, you can do it on the financial, on the investing side of the house only is totally fine and acceptable. You should have your 12 month plan, but then you should also be zoomed out to say, what, how does this fit into the broader context across all my assets, all my account types, IRAs, trusts, real estate, whatever the other crap is that you own, and you want to see that over a multi-year period. Because back to Ben's point, it might just be, you might be in a really low window this year for capital gains. And you might go, I don't want to take any losses. I actually want to realize these capital gains because they're at an ultra, ultra low rate. Or you might say, oh crap, I sold my company, I sold my investment property, um, and something else, and I got a big bonus from work this year. And now... Uh, and, uh, and you know, a company I invested in got bought out or something. And when all that stuff happens at once, it might be like, oh crap, I need every tax loss I can find because I'm at top tax bracket on every single thing that just happened to me, that perspective, which goes outside of the calendar year, cross asset class and cross your entire financial picture, your old balance sheet. worth its weight in gold. Also not really a big conversation topic these last few years, but like coming out of the financial crisis, as I'm sure you guys remember. Like you can carry forward tax losses too. So there's also that. If you really buy a stinker and it you know sucks and it's there for a while and you got to work it off, you can carry those losses forward. They're on your tax return if you're paying attention. And uh, that can be a huge boon too. Jack, you already made the point. Like do it if you have to, don't do it just for fun. Jack, I thought it might be
0: kind of cool if we could just for a few minutes talk about how... When we review the investment strategies we build, which are basically comprised of a number of different models that are almost like kind of competing against each other um, to get into a core portfolio or an active equity portfolio, like we manage how we go about reviewing the strategies that are included in the overall portfolio, what we look at, why a strategy might get removed and replaced by another strategy. Because we do do this on an annual basis, and so I thought, you know, I think some of this will be able to be uh, something that investors can learn from in terms of how, you know, the methodology that you maintain in terms of maintaining these strategies.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. Like everything we do is is effectively multi-factor investing. So we're taking like a group of strategies. Let's say it's just forty or something to make it a round number. We're taking those strategies and we're combining them together into a portfolio. And there's kind of two different ways you can do that. One is you can use what we call the consensus approach, which is where you can look for stocks where there's agreement among those strategies in terms of what to put in. The other one is you could pick actual strategies, like more, we call it select blend, but some people call it the sleeve method. You could pick actual strategies and say, out of the 40, I'm going to put these six into the portfolio and that's how I'm going to do it. So we we do it both ways. And it's interesting, like, this is another thing where we're always looking at it throughout the year. You know, we try to keep the changes to year end when we can, but we're, we're always looking at it and doing the research around it. And so that consensus approach is actually done, it's done throughout the year and it's done programmatically. So we're deciding how to weight those strategies using the full track record of those strategies and a bunch of data we collect about those strategies. But that data is changing all the time. The long-term data is. So it's like a glacial change in the strategy. You know, because we have a very long-term amount of data we're using, slowly over time, that strategy, strategy changes itself. So with that strategy, there's no need to say at the end of the year, like, do we do something different? You know, I guess we could look at the formula we're using behind the scenes, but for the most part, that determines, that's determined programmatically. The other example, though, where I'm going to pick six strategies out of 40, that's the one where you have to kind of make a decision. And, and that's a very hard thing to do because, you know, and we all know this, having watched value investing struggle, like a lot of factors that struggle over long periods of time can, you know, or that do well over long periods of time can struggle over short periods of time. And so you have to decide as a manager, you know, what, what do I put in there? And you know, the core principle is if I'm putting six strategies out of 40, I want ones that are different than each other. I want ones that I expect to do well, but ones that are have use uncorrelated strategies. I don't want six deep value strategies because obviously that ride is going to be tough. But then over time, you could say, all right, I've got my six uncorrelated strategies, but you know I'm really seeing value spreads become really, really wide here. You know, I, I know I can't time value, but maybe I want to make like a small change, like Cliff Asness's idea of sin a little. Maybe I want to make a slight adjustment towards value. And, and that's what we kind of do is we 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 look at the full track record of what's going on. But we also look at data about the factors themselves and what's going on with them. And we try to say, is a change warranted? And, you know, most of the time it ends up being a lot of work to do absolutely nothing because we go through this whole process. And at the end of the day, you realize, all right, based on the long-term context, we've got it where we want it to be. We don't have to make any major changes. But there there are situations that come up where we say, all right, we should include a new strategy. Or there could be situations that come up, like, for instance, what's been going on with value with intangible assets. Like we might say, all right, we've got a lot of value strategies that use you know, more of a tangible approach to value. Well, this intangible thing makes a lot of sense. Like we need to make sure we have exposure to what we're doing. You know, if, if that type of value ends up working better going forward, we want exposure there to factors that work there or to some sort of intangible based strategy, whatever it is to say, like, let's build a better overall portfolio. So it, it's a very complicated, I mean, you might be able to explain it better than me, Justin. It's, it's a very complicated process. But ultimately, usually it involves like minor changes or not major changes because you're, you're really looking at a long term context when you're trying to make these things.
0: Yeah. And I was just two additional things, I guess, that I'd like you to kind of shake out if you can. So I, I think we have in the past, if we've been very surprised negatively in terms of how a strategy behaves, in terms of its drawdowns or something we see in the strategy, you know, that is a consideration. That's a candidate for possible replacement because the strategy reacted in such a way that. We didn't anticipate and it actually was not something we could have anticipated and it was just more negative than we thought. So that's something when we see like a massive drawdown, like a 60 or 70% drawdown in the strategy, you know, it gives us a lot to say, wait a minute, is that strategy really the most appropriate? Well, one, that's one thing. Um, and then two, I think we've also said, you know, we're trying to mix value growth and other sort of, I guess, factors together. But it, we, we know that when value, at least in our experience, that when value has gone on like these great runs, after those types of periods, you want to try to back off the value exposure to try to get more multi-factor or more growth in there. Um, so I don't know if you have any comments on either of those two things, but- Yeah,
1: two, on your first point, the idea, yeah, if something is outside of the risk parameters of what we'd expect, You know, that's, that's, that's something we definitely look at. But also I I think the bigger question for me always is like, is this doing what it's supposed to do when it's supposed to do it? Right. So for instance, if it's a value strategy and values raging and is doing nothing or, or the opposite, you know, if the deep value strategy and every other deep value strategy is getting killed, but this thing's going up, like you have to ask, and I think that's good, not just for us, like as investment managers, but for anybody evaluating funds and stuff is understand like what it, what it is supposed to be and what it's supposed to do at what certain time because that's when you can figure out like something's wrong with a strategy. If it's doing something completely outside of what you'd expect in an environment, you'd expect it to be doing another thing. You know, I think that's a hugely important thing is trying to figure that out versus just because a strategy has a really bad year or something, as long as it's not well outside of you know, what your expected parameters are, that can be okay because maybe you had that strategy in there as your really aggressive exposure to X factor. But when it's not doing what it's supposed to do, to me, that's when the bigger red flag comes in. And It's important for you guys to have this conversation and
3: say this stuff somewhere in public, because for, for like us as predominantly allocators, like every fund is making the decision if they want to do this type of stuff for their investors or not. And different structures are incentivized to just focus on purely the return versus the after tax results or, or indifferent. And so like just even this idea of rebalancing and tax loss harvesting can make or break what the return profile looks like for a strategy going forward. So thank you for sharing that dialogue with us.
1: Yeah, and also like for us, you know, we're a small manager, so this is a little bit easier. Like if if we're running $20 billion or something like that, it becomes a much harder thing because you've got that other factor that comes in, which is we would love to make these changes or we would love to do this, but unfortunately we can't turn over the portfolio to do it because we're way too big. So, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into this. It's a very complex thing and it's something that certainly has no answer. Uh, And Justin, I don't think I even answered the second part of your question. I don't remember what it was. That was, you know, when if we had, let's say, a
0: portfolio dominated by mostly value strategies after a great run in value, you might decide to be more multi-factor or more growth. Kind of taking advantage of, you know, after a style has a really great run. Like, for example, from 2000 to 2006, roughly. I mean, you know, maybe we would have been early in moving out of value, but that was a great time for value. If you stuck with... an you know, predominantly value, systematic value strategy after 06, it kind of also fell apart and unraveled. So it would have been prudent to be diversifying your, your factor exposure, basically.
1: Yeah. There's two things there. One, it goes back to the idea of sin a little, which I think is a lesson, you know, probably I learned earlier in my career is like, you can't wait too much towards value. Like even, even if value is cheap and value looks really attractive, you know, it can be years before it turns around. So you probably want to make smaller bets. You know, if, if you're going to weight yourself towards a factor, which we do, we we do do a small amount of factor timing, but you probably want to be careful about not going crazy and not you know getting outrageous exposure to the factor because you know that can come back to bite you you know later. And the and the other thing is what you said, which is there's a flip side to this. I mean, it's you know as a value investor right now, you can't even imagine there's a flip side to it because value has been cheap basically forever. But actually, it does happen that value gets expensive. You know, and there might be situations where if you're doing this sort of slight tilting thing, where you may maybe want to tilt away from value and. You know, an example is like fourteen, fifteen, like around then, like value ended up having a bad run in 14, but going into that run, value actually was expensive. It wasn't cheap. So, you know, it works both ways. And that's something, you, you know, hopefully we'll get to the day where it will work both ways again and where we actually can say, oh, value is really expensive because we'll have done well in that period. But it, it does work both ways. And it's important if you're going to have a timing strategy, probably, and you're going to make slight changes that you'd be willing to make them in both directions.
0: All right, so let's shift it over to uh, Matt and Ben. Around sort of year end financial planning um, ideas and things that you do. Again, a lot of these probably are being done consistently throughout the year. Um, But I just tried to come up with some, you know, sort of a beginning list, a starting list of ideas about what types of things, you know, I know we do with some of our clients that you guys do a lot more on the planning side. So talking about, um, I mean, maybe to start just, you know, RMDs. I mean, a lot of people wait until the end of the year to take their um, distributions and then, you know, and so you guys can kind of talk to that.
3: So I'm saying this first and then Ben as director (laughs) of planning can answer all the hard questions. But this is literally the most important thing. What we said earlier, there's the inside of the year have to do. There's the inside of the year should do or what we want to do. And then there's the broader planning thing, which is understanding the context, like outside of this year and beyond, how does this decision affect or is expected to affect future years? So go back. We've got other lessons on taking money out of retirement accounts and explaining exactly what RMDs are. But why don't we just start with just the general RMD rules, what they are and how you think about how they impact your income and what you need to do before 1231. Fire away, Ben. RMDs (laughs) go. Yeah, you definitely don't want to wait till after
2: twelve thirty one, probably twelve thirty one, to start the RMD process. Um, yeah, I mean, this just like things that Jack's brought up earlier in this conversation is you, you know what your RMD is for the year on January first or let's call it January twentieth at the latest. You know what the RMD is. The best start, the best time to start the planning is the day it, day that number gets published on your custodian's website. Because how assets flow in, every you have, you're required to take that money out. There's really no way around it. And if you don't, you are pay quite a hefty penalty, even though that was reduced from 50% down to 25%. That still is a meaningful penalty on top, up top of taxes.
3: Penalty. You pay federal, you yes. pay state, and you pay penalty. It sucks.
2: Right. Don't do that. Don't do that. So, so the easiest answer there is just make sure you take it but you may have other income sources that you have to take into consideration. We have many clients that are still working part-time. And how does that affect what their tax rate is gonna be on that requirement of distribution? Some, of, some people don't have maybe 10, 20, $30,000 to pick up a large tax bill. So what is required is the planning ahead of time to say, let's make sure that we're withholding the right percentage. Let's not give this big interest-free loan to the government. But let's withhold, let's just do some math. We know about how many hours you're working. Let's do some forward forecasting. And that's, you know, primarily what we'll do with some of our software and with our old friend, Microsoft Excel to forecast out some of the tax rates and, and what somebody's go throughout the year. So that's R&D planning. It doesn't start in November or December. That's more of like the, say, HIT, I need to take this. And you just pull it out of the account so you don't pay the penalty. Yeah.
3: It's required you have to do it. It's minimum. So there's an amount that you have to be above and it's a distribution. So it's coming out of that frigging account. You're going to pay taxes on it. The key dates to know sometime middle to late January, your custodian says what it is. And just like they tell you, they probably don't want to process this on New Year's Eve. So be extra careful because in uh, prior years, I've seen that get backed up too from war
2: and trauma stories of this business. Those penalties await on the other side. Absolutely. The, the one thing that I'll add I, um, is something that we do later in the year. And that is somewhat, some more tax forecasting, especially for earners that maybe are not receiving an RMD. They're not, maybe they're still in their prime working years and their prime earning years. There is a lot of tax work that goes into place for those individuals and those clients because we want to know around September, October. What is the earnings going to look like through year-end? Is there anything that we can do, ramp up 401k contributions, ramp up other deferrals of income if we are breaching certain points? Many of our clients contribute to a Roth 401k. Maybe switching to a pre-tax 401k before year-end would yield better benefits for them down the line to pay taxes at a lower rate. So that, is hard to forecast. You can't. You can monitor that throughout the year, but sometimes it's tough to forecast, especially some of the executives we work with that have variable compensation. Hey, we just we don't know what the company earnings are going to be. Usually around September, October, we have a pretty good feel, and that gives us enough uh, runway time to start to make some live adjustments. So there's certain things that happen at the beginning of the year. There's certain things that like we need to wait till closer to the end of the year. But planning is 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 key.
0: But I could see how that conversation around taxes could be very valuable because you're kind of getting in front of it, and you know you're getting some dates on the calendar. You know, there's an estimated payment. You know, due whatever March thirty first, or whatever the payment dates are due. You know, June thirtieth, or whatever it is, and that that way someone can kind of have those mental marks in their in their head. You know, I remember it, we got it was lucky, but it was unlucky, and this goes back to the re- the rebalancing thing. This has. It doesn't have much to do with year end, but I guess it does. Um, so, like in March of 2020, when stocks had fallen as much as they did, you know, our system is set up to be buying and selling stocks in, in any given month. And so, you know, we rebalanced right at the low, and some of our portfolios ended up doing like extremely well. But the drawback of that was people that had taxable money with us, you know, had big tax bills that were due the following year that they just didn't even see coming. And, you know, we sort of learned our lesson. I mean, we're in constant communication with our clients, but sometimes, you know, we might not talk to someone for a couple months. And so we kind of missed that conversation. And then this big tax bill was due and people had no, didn't even see it coming. So I don't know. Yeah, I could just see that those conversations around taxes. um, And in your case, when you're talking to
3: executives and stuff like that, like for sure very valuable. The tax returns are just a snapshot. So it's like, we know the IRS wants to take this snapshot, family picture time on 1231 of your finances. And a lot of times stuff clusters together. So that's where it's, you got to talk about the intra year stuff, but you really have to like zoom out and see, because more often than not, what we see is a bunch of things happen at once. So it's like in the year you're retiring or the year in between the company sale and turning on social security or RMD starting, there's just all these little quirks and you need a multi-year perspective to understand how they fit together, which is probably not a half bad way to segue into some of the changes that we've seen in the tax code RMD age. And maybe even we should at least mention like Irma and some of that stuff. Ben, you want to talk about some of the Fun tax code changes and maybe some of the healthcare considerations that we find all the time too?
2: Yeah. So it's hard to keep track of the RMD ages past three years. I mean, it was 70 and a half, then it was 72, then it was 73, now it's 75. One of the big questions that we always get from our pre-retirees and retirees are like, what is my RMD age? And honestly, I don't know about I have to look it up 100% of the time. There's no, I can never remember this is the year you were born and uh, it course this is, this. This was so easy in my
3: career up until <laughs> what, four years ago when yeah. they started changing all the dates? Because everybody was 70 and a half and that was just the way it was. But they've moved it so many times and with the the year that the RMDs were forgiven in the pandemic. Right. Like nobody knows which direction, we just know which direction is up, but we don't know anything else right now. So yes. Right. I can attest. I have to look this up every single time right now.
2: Every time. So I would suggest like for anybody listening to this, you have to look it up. I I it's hard to give just like a blanket across the board, but it's been changed so many times. Um I, I can't imagine that it's gonna keep changing, but I yeah. you know, if the last four years is any indicator, then, then maybe that does happen. Matt also mentioned something there. That we've actually run into probably four times in the past month, which is IRMA, so income related monthly adjustment amount. And that's associated with your Medicare costs. So, part B and part D of your Medicare is an adjustable number. Everybody has the same base amount. And you can, you know, you could find this. So, you just Google the IRMA um, brackets. Everybody has the same base amount. But once you make too much money and you're on Medicare, you have adjustments to that. So you have additional premiums that you have to pay on your Part B and Part D benefits. And those There's a two-year look-back period on the IRMA adjustment. So if you are 63, 65, you're going to go on to Medicare and you made a million dollars when you were 63 years old and you started on Medicare at 65. That year, the you were 63, counts as the first year of that IRMA adjustment. Now there's some ways around that. You know, there's some forms that you could take care of with Social Security to let them know that you retired. But the 2-year look back means that any income that you're generating has a 24-month effect on you. And where this is critical, and this is where Matt and I have run into this a number of times is Roth conversions. This because of what we just said, RMD ages are getting pushed back. Now there's a little bit bigger window for doing Roth conversions. However, you have to be very careful when you convert too much money that counts as income and can push up your Medicare expenses. And for some, that may be two, dollars $3,000 a year, depending on what what income we're talking about. So there's much more to consider when doing some of these uh, financial planning strategies that just taxes. Taxes is always the big one that we talk about. We're to forecast around that one number, but IRMA is something else that we factor into the equation. So we give somebody a total picture of what Uh, maybe a Roth conversion or something else may cost.
0: What I was going to ask with big life events is, do you guys find that, I mean, it seems to me like big life events would mostly, this is going to sound silly or whatever, like they're mostly on the calendar. You have your kid going off to college. You kind of know you're going to retire next year. You're Looking to downsize. I mean, these are things that I would I mean, obviously people's financial picture is always changing and it's dynamic, it's evolving. But do do you find, I guess, that the year-end conversations is where more of those big life event sort of conversations are happening? Or is it just always happening and it's it's really fluid and I don't know. I'm thinking of like myself, like personally, I might you know, if I'm, if I have a big life event coming next year, I would probably be likely to talk about it with my advisor at like the year end meeting as we're doing, you know, year end planning or next year planning. But, um, I don't know. Do you see what I'm, what I'm asking? I'm just wondering I, if those conversations happen more. For the so the, the year.
3: conversations happen more. This goes back to the tax filing thing, the calendar year that we all operate on. Like that's that IRS snapshot, right? So when we're talking about big life changes, and this is where it can't just be a once a year snapshot. We have to look at the whole photo album. We have to see, you know, when the kids were yay. And then when the kids were yay, we want to know what's happening in time this year. What's happening over time, possibly a few years in the, in the rear view, possibly several years out through the windshield. And that in time, over time differentiation, whenever that happens, that can happen any day or any month of the year. But just understanding, uh, great, you sold the vacation home or you inherited the house from mom, it was a second house, it was in another state, but you inherited it from her and you sold it because you didn't want to keep the house in whatever town in whatever other state. Well, guess what? Potentially, because of the way that the house was titled and sold, you have a tax liability. Is that tax liability because you're uh, retired going to affect your Medicare premiums? In-time decisions that have overtime consequences, and that's whenever they go up, that's what we're always trying to help people do, That's the core of the CCBS, the calendar cash flow, balance sheet conversation saying true context means we know what's on the calendar right in front of us and out into the future. We know what the cash flows are, what's coming in versus what has to go out. That includes taxes, RMDs, and everything else. And we understand the ramifications on the balance sheet. Basically, if we're net saving money, what are we building towards? If we're net spending money, what are we pulling out of? And how do we have a strategy around that? What's big stuff any time of year, but in time, over time, constant conversation.
1: What's also interesting is with things like marriage, like on 1231, either you're married or you're not. And you know, that's, that's basically the way the IRS looks at it. So, you know, Matt, I might know some people who might be getting married towards the end of this year and maybe some other people, you know, are getting married in January. And like the different implications there are are pretty, could be pretty significant. Um, because one person is going to be filing married joint and one's going to be single. Um,
3: it it is (laughs) not a tax strategy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I, as I was war- warned by a beloved a beloved colleague, he said he almost, he almost died in a room when he was having a, a a grandchild and he accidentally muttered the term in front of his daughter about like, oh good, before 1231, <laughs> the tax break on that. It, it...
0: Uh, I guess as we wrap up here, any big bold predictions for next year
1: from anyone? Anyone want to take, stick their neck out and... Well, before anybody does that, I am going to make you guys do, because as you know, I write my article every year where I make ridiculous uh, economic and market predictions just to show wow. that they're ridiculous, just so I can look back and say how bad they are. Like, I'm going to force you guys to do an episode around that at the end of this year where we're going to okay. be forced to predict the stock market and as effectively as a joke, but then we're going to hold each other accountable to see what happens. Um, and in the first one, we can just attack my predictions from last year and how disastrous they were. Um, and you guys, can, you guys can tell me why my 5% mortgage prediction for the end of the year was a poor choice. Well, the year's not over yet, Jack. <laughs> I guess, but now I'd have to hope for like economic calamity or something to make it a, <laughs> to make it true. So I probably, uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't hope for
3: that anymore. Well, if markets are good at one thing this year, it's calamity. So sure, there's still a shot. So we'll
0: we'll hold on predictions for now. Um, yeah, hopefully this is you know the, a lot of the stuff we talked about in here very basic, and you know we really just used twelve thirty one. As an opportunity to talk about things that probably should be done all throughout the year, whether you're tax loss harvesting, looking to rebalance your portfolio, opportune times, a lot of the stuff that Ben and Matt talked about with the overall planning conversations, Matt's cash flow and calendar, continue reference, which is super sound and super solid. So, yeah, hopefully you guys found this valuable. Thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you next time. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.